On November 29th, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments in Securities and Exchange Commission versus Jarkissi. The case involves three separate constitutional challenges to the structure of the SEC, and it could reshape the ability of the government to regulate the securities markets. Hello, friends. I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. In this episode, we'll break down the arguments in this important case. We'll touch on the non-delegation doctrine, the scope of presidential authority, and the right to a jury trial. And we'll hear from our guests about how the case might shape the future of the administrative state. Joining me to explore these questions are Noah Rosenblum, Assistant Professor of Law at NYU, and Alan Werman, Assistant Professor at the Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law at Arizona State University. Noah Rosenblum's an Assistant Professor of Law at NYU School of Law, where he was previously the Samuel I. Golieb Fellow in Legal History. He works on state and federal administrative law, among other topics, and he recently wrote a piece in The Atlantic on the SEC case, The Case That Could Destroy the Government. Noah, it is wonderful to welcome you to We the People. Thank you for having me. So delighted to be here. And Alan Worman is Associate Professor at the Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law at Arizona State University, where he teaches administrative law and constitutional law. He's the author of several important books, including A Debt Against the Living, An Introduction to Originalism, and The Second Founding, An Introduction to the 14th Amendment. Alan, great to welcome you back to We the People. Glad to be back. Thanks for having me, and I look forward to sparring with Noah for the first time. Wonderful. Well, Noah, in your uh, piece in the, the Atlantic, the headline was the case that could destroy the government. Uh, you, you, you may not have written the headline, but tell us why this is an important case and what the stakes are. So I can't take credit for the headline. That was my amazing editor, Becca Rosen, but she totally captured the spirit of the piece. And when I was writing it, I was worried about two of the three arguments that I think we're going to discuss. When Jarkissi's case was heard at the Fifth Circuit, Two of the reasons the Fifth Circuit gave for upholding his arguments were that the delegation to the Securities and Exchange Commission was so broad as to render its exercise of power unconstitutional, and that the administrative law judges that the Securities and Exchange Commission relied on to hear the case against Jarkissi were too independent from the president to issue a constitutional ruling. And I thought both of those arguments, if they were accepted, could have really devastating ramifications for the rest of the administrative state. Great. Well, we'll explore both of those arguments and more. Ilan, uh, do you think that this is a case that could uh, destroy the government or not? I don't think so. But the extent of the damage, now some people might like damage here, okay? I'm just using damage neutrally. The extent of the damage would depend, I agree with Noah, on the basis on which the, uh, the decision ultimately is decided, and I do think it's probably going to be decided under the Article 3, Seventh Amendment judicial power jury trial issue. Uh, if it's decided under executive power with this, you know, there is these two layers of four-cause removal protections for the agency adjudicators. How many of those kinds of adjudicators are there with two layers? There are quite a few, but it's a relatively easy fix. The Article 3, Seventh Amendment issue there, I have proposed some relatively easy fixes. Other scholars have proposed some relatively easy fixes, even if that's the direction that the court goes in. 
I agree with Noah that the non-delegation doctrine, if that's the basis, it portends a lot more possible ramifications. Sounds great. Well, let us work through the major arguments in the case. Um, Let's begin, perhaps, with this question of whether the Seventh Amendment's uh, right to civil jury trial is triggered. That uh, depends on whether or not the right in question is considered a public or a private right. Lots of discussion on this. Uh, Noah, tell us what the arguments on both sides of this issue are. So I I hate to disagree with you, Jeffrey, because it's such a tiny little obnoxious nitpicky thing. Mm -hmm. But in fact, the way that you framed the question illustrates why this issue is so complicated. Because the Seventh Amendment issue, at least as I understand it, doesn't turn on the public right, private right question. It's just a textual issue. It has to do with suits at common law. And on the one hand, that seems pretty obvious, right? Oh, if you're a front of a judge in a suited common law, then you're entitled to a jury trial under some circumstances. But that just pushes the question back. And in some ways, the move you just made where you said public rights, private rights is to start to follow the logic of the doctrine. Because then we have to ask, well, wait, when might you be entitled to a civil suit at common law? And that's going to get us into questions of public rights and private rights. But it could also more broadly get us into a discussion of the relationship between Article Three adjudication and Article One adjudication. So when law professors talk this way, we're making the distinction between cases that represent exercises of the judicial power, which under the Constitution needs to be exercised by judges appointed by the president and confirmed by the Senate, right? That's Article Three of the Constitution, which vests the judicial power. Or does it involve the kinds of things that you could handle through other procedures? We sometimes refer to these as Article One adjudications. What we mean by that is just that Congress passes a law to create some sort of a regulatory apparatus. And as part of that, they assign the decision to somebody within that world. So they're created by Article One. There are lots of examples of these kinds of folks. And I got to say, for your average American, it can be hard to keep track of them. So a regular district judge, that's an Article Three judge, but a bankruptcy judge, that's an Article One judge, and many of the decisions an Article Three judge makes are actually made after referring it to a magistrate judge, which is technically an Article One judge, even though most litigants would never know the difference. Many thanks for that and for that uh, important uh, clarification. Um, Ilan, this is complicated stuff. T- step back and sort of help listeners explain why there's a dispute about whether or not the Seventh Amendment applies, where this public-private right distinction comes from. Uh, it's a case called uh, the, the, the Atlas uh, case, which which came up a lot in the oral argument, and, and what the stakes are. So I'm going to find myself in possibly rare agreement with Noah. We'll find out how rare it is. He shouldn't get too used to it. That public and private rights has something to do with the jury, but it's indirect. It really has to do with this question of whether a case must be adjudicated in an Article III court. What makes an Article III court an Article III court, by the way? It's lifetime tenure, salary protection, judicial independence, right? Or is it the kind of case that can be decided by a non-Article III adjudicator, whether it's a bankruptcy judge or an administrative law judge or an executive branch official, like a federal prosecutor or a U.S. attorney, right? That's, That's the stake. Where can these cases be heard? The public-private rights distinction tells us the answer, at least theoretically, and people dispute where the line is, all cases involving private rights must be heard, ultimately resolved, I should say, finally resolved with a real court, whether it's a state court or an Article III court exercising judicial power. Matters involving public rights, and we'll need to go over what those are, 
can be heard in the executive branch. The historical reason for this has something to do with sovereign immunity. It's it's not the government coming after you for your life, liberty, or property. It's not a dispute between two private parties. It's You want something from the government, like a public land grant or a welfare benefit. And if it was wrongfully withheld from you, you didn't have a right to sue. They didn't have to consent to be sued. Congress didn't have to consent to be sued. So sovereign immunity leads to this doctrine of public rights that could be entirely adjudicated in the executive branch. So what is the relationship between all of this to the jury trial? Well, all cases involving public rights do not need a jury. Because if it's a public right, it can be heard exclusively in the executive branch, and the executive branch doesn't impanel juries. Juries belong in courts for the most part, right? So if it's a matter of public rights, you can assign it to the agency, administrative agency, and then you're done. It resolves both the Article Three question and the Seventh Amendment question. But what happens if it's a private rights case, something involving your life, liberty, or property, where the government's coming after you? As in Jarkissi, the question is whether seeking civil penalties, monetary penalties, right, is a private right. Well, then it has to be heard, at least under the formalist originalist understanding, in a real court, an Article III court. And then the question becomes, okay, now that you're in an Article III court, do you also get a jury trial right? And the question then has to do with what kind of relief is the government seeking or what kind of relief are you seeking? If it's legal relief, meaning monetary damages that can be collected through attachment of property, say, okay, that is a legal claim. Equitable claims that actually require the defendant to do something or to stop doing something, those do not require a jury historically. And there are also cases involving admiralty, uh, which are not common law claims. Historical reasons, I suppose, where are you going to get a jury of your peers on the high seas? Okay, fine. You know, whatever the reason, admiralty is excluded, equitable relief is excluded. But if it's legal, a legal remedy like damages that is being sought, then you get the, the, the jury trial right. So how would this play out in jarcusy? Well, I think whatever the relief being sought, the argument that some formalists make is this is private rights. He's been banned from the securities industry for violation of fraud. He's been asked to pay civil penalties, give up his property, his money. As a result, this is a private right. It's not sovereign immunity doesn't play into it. It belongs in a court. Then the question is, does he also get a jury trial right? And the answer is probably yes for the claim for civil monetary penalties, because that's not equitable relief. It's it's nothing. It's not something that can only be resolved through asking the defendant to take some action or not take some action. It's just the payment of money, which can be accomplished without any action at all through attaching property, for example. So that's how a formalist would decide this case. It's not that simple. I've tried to simplify it. Hopefully, that makes some sense. But it, but it's not easy. This stuff isn't easy. One more beat on the Seventh Amendment question, which came up a lot in the oral argument. Justice Gorsuch had an extended exchange with counsel about when the Seventh Amendment was triggered as, as a textualist, Chief Justice Roberts asked, could the government adjudicate uh, questions involving health care outside of a civil uh, jury trial? And Justice Thomas just asked straight out, and how would you define public rights? And the counsel responded that when the federal government, an agency, is enforcing a federal statute in its exercise of its sovereign powers, that's a matter involving public rights. No, what were the justices digging in on? And what would the consequences be if the court were to hold that a civil jury trial were required in, in this case? So those are two great questions. So on the first one, though, you know, what are the justices digging in on here? 
the public rights, private rights distinction is notoriously confused. I think Roberts in the same argument said something like, before Justice Thomas asked his question, you know, counsel, the distinction between public rights and private rights in our jurisprudence is not very clear. So I just want to start, you know, what are the judges digging in on here? They are wrestling with the same question that Ilan and I are wrestling with, which is, wow, if you're really going to go into this area of law, things are hard and complicated. And it really isn't just a matter of partisan disagreement or even formalist versus functionalist tendencies. We're all grappling to figure out the bounds here. But that gets us to the second part of your question, which is some version of what's at stake and how would it change? And here again, I find myself in violent agreement with Ilan. The underlying question is, what kinds of claims need to go in front of what kind of adjudicators? And the simplest way to think about it is if you allow a lot of claims to go into the category of, say, public rights or claims in which you're not entitled to a jury trial or can go to an Article I adjudicator, then you can have administrative law judges and commissions and people who are not life-tenured federal judges or state judges, although we're not really talking about state regulatory regimes, make decisions about those questions. Whereas if you shrink that category and you make the other category, the Article Three or private rights or jury trial category bigger, then those cases have to go in front of a federal judge. What does that mean for something like this case? Well, for something like the SEC, might not actually mean all that much. Because as came up several times in the course of argument, the statute at issue let the SEC choose whether to bring these enforcement actions in front of a law judge, an administrative law judge inside the agency, or go to federal court. And it seems like the SEC, in part because of these legal worries, has been bringing these cases in front of federal judges. And the truth is that if you're a fraudster who's defrauding the markets and you go in front of a federal judge, you... Um, tend to do about as well as you do in front of an administrative law judge in front of the agency. So hard to see how much of a difference it makes. Small asterisk here, there's reason to believe that people who are investigated by the SEC often prefer to go to administrative law judges because it's faster and cheaper, even though they get a lot of the same procedure. So ultimate takeaway here is that it might just make things a little more expensive, but for the SEC, it might not change all that much. The reason people like me get a little worried about it is that, as Alan alluded to, there are a lot of administrative law judges and adjudicators throughout the government, and I have not gone agency by agency to try to figure out, wait, are you allowed to impose civil penalties? And my two worries on that score, one would be, if there are a lot of places that do civil penalties, you might be shifting a lot of work into the federal courts, and we can talk about whether we think that's good or bad. But flip side, civil penalties, all things considered, are, are a relatively um, light, liberal in the kind of classical liberal sense way of punishing wrongdoing. Whereas, as Alan alluded to, there's a real distinction here between equitable remedies and common law remedies. Equitable remedies can be awfully more invasive. You know, taking away somebody's license can really mean preventing them from practicing their profession, banning somebody from the airwaves, right? Those are the kinds of things that I think you could do without a jury trial under almost anyone's reading. And if you're going to make it harder for agencies to get money sanctions, you might incentivize them to pursue these other much more invasive forms of regulation. So I think that classical liberals might, and I'm not a classical liberal, but if you were, you might be anxious on the liberty front about some of the consequences of a ruling like this. Elon, what is your sense of what the consequences of a decision against the SEC on the Seventh Amendment question 
would be, are there lots of other uh, agencies that uh, delegate these decisions to non-Article uh, three uh, courts? And how big a deal would it be? So let me start with the Deputy Solicitor General's argument that as long as Congress creates a statute and allows a federal officer to enforce it, it's a public right. So it's something to that effect. That cannot possibly be right. And even Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson was like, this argument is circular, right? The whole question in this case is what cases can be assigned to the executive branch and which can't. And you're saying, you know, the government was saying, well, anytime Congress chooses to assign it to the executive branch, it can do it because then it's not a case within the meaning of the Seventh Amendment. Or That's totally circular. And Justice Jackson had some of the best questions. She's not going to rule with the conservatives on this, but she had some of the best questions. It just can't be true, that line, because when you think about it, every U.S. attorney, a federal prosecutor, would meet that definition. They prosecute offenses and crimes you know, pursuant to statutes that Congress enacts. And no one thinks that somehow a federal prosecutor could bring an action and another federal prosecutor can adjudicate that action and just decide. I mean, no one would think that that's, that that's correct. So, there, so if the modern doctrine can justifiably diverge from that formalist conception that I started with, it has to have something to do with technical expertise, narrow and specialized areas, which is how the doctrine actually labels it. Congress can't just give it to the executive branch. It has to be in a narrow and specialized and technical area, which is all probably wrong, again, as a, an originalist or formalist matter, but it's certainly a better line than, well, if Congress decides, you know, then, then Congress gets to decide, which is totally circular. As to the ramifications, I do, th and this was asked time and again, as you mentioned at the oral argument, something like 80% of adjudicators are social security adjudicators. Social security is a public right. It's public benefits. Public welfare benefits are the quintessential example of a public right, because it's not the government coming and asking you for something out of your bank account or for your real property or for your liberty or for your life. It's you want something for the government. The government says, no, you're not entitled to social security benefits. And again, sovereign immunity says they don't have to let you sue them. That is a classic public right. It's a public benefit. By the way, Noah, I think licensing airwaves is also a public right. I've done some work on this in the 14th Amendment context because it's a fixed natural resource. And I do think uh, that, that that's a public right. Uh, but to the extent, you know, there are agencies that do involve lots of private rights, Federal Trade Commission, Securities and Exchange Commission, probably, you know, the FEC for campaign finance violations. Could those be tried uh, in, in an agency? I, I So those cases would all be implicated. And I will say that there is a solution. There is a solution to this. There are two solutions. One is to the extent that these have to be in Article Three courts, okay, with or without juries. What's to stop Congress from creating a system in which administrative law judges make findings of fact and conclusions of law and submit those as reports and recommendations, the objections to which will be reviewed de novo by a real district court. I mean, you get the administrative expertise. It solves 95% of the issues because you're not going to object to every single issue. You're going to object discreetly. This is exactly what magistrate judges do, how, how their reports and recommendations are reviewed de novo by a district court. It's how bankruptcy courts private rights claims are adjudicated by a federal district court. Why not do that for agency adjudicators? Now, it doesn't solve the jury trial problem if the relief that is sought is legal rather than equitable. But for then, you know, as I think Noah alluded to this and Chris Walker, and I think a colleague of his has a paper saying, why not allow 
uh, people who are subject to this jury trial right to choose to remove their case from the agency to federal court. And if they choose not to remove their case, well, consent waives the jury trial right. And a lot of people might prefer to be in front of an agency adjudicator. So between this report and recommendation process and this right of removal and consent, uh, I think you solve you know, a lot of the problem to the extent it's a big problem anyway, uh, which is not clear again, because most of these adjudicators are in public benefits programs. Many thanks for that. Well, let us turn now to the second of the questions in the case, and that involves non-delegation. Uh, Noah, in your article, you said that uh, Jarkese's most far-reaching constitutional argument is built on the non-delegation doctrine, which holds that there may be some limits on the kinds of powers Congress can give to agencies. And uh, you say his argument is wild stuff. Indeed, you call it uh, chutzpah. And I, I think uh, Justice Kagan may have been quoting you in the oral argument where she said... Nobody has had the, you know, chutzpah. Bring this argument up since uh, Atlas Roofing. So tell us about the non-delegation argument and why you think it's uh, both chutzpah and constitutionally unconvincing. Well, obviously, as one Jew living in New York, listening to another when Justice Kagan said that, I was delighted. And of course, my mother made sure that uh, I, I was aware of it as well. So I'd like to believe she was quoting me, although I don't have any reason to actually believe that. Um, I think the non-delegation argument illustrates something happening in the background in this case, which is connected to the Seventh Amendment piece, which is really about why these claims are being brought. So the non-delegation argument is really straightforward. It's that Congress cannot delegate to agencies certain kinds of decisions absent some form of constraint or guidance. And people fight a lot about exactly how much constraint or guidance there should be. The current dominant um, test is called the intelligible principle test, although Neil Gorsuch and some others have suggested that that's not a good test and there should be another one. The key thing to understand is that administrative state skeptics have been making this exact argument over and over again for more than 90 years. And at every turn, it has been laughed out of court with one exception that happened twice just under 90 years ago during the New Deal. And the two statutes at issue in those two cases are so completely different from the statute at issue here that there's no comparing. Moreover, as I highlight when I teach these cases in con law, those two cases don't even obviously turn on the non-delegation argument. There are a bunch of other arguments in those cases about why those two particular delegations were unconstitutional, including many things related to process. So the fact that Jarkissi is making this argument isn't surprising because anti-administrativists have been looking for hooks to undermine the legitimacy and legality of the administrative state for as long as it's been around. And for what it's worth, that to me is the connection to the Seventh Amendment argument. So I come back to a point that Alan made just a second ago. If you really take the Seventh Amendment Article Three argument seriously, there's some pretty easy solutions that don't disrupt things. But that's not why George Jarkissi is making that argument. George Jarkissi is making that argument because he doesn't want to have to own up to the fraud that he committed, and he's looking for ways to frustrate the enforcement of the laws against him. That's the same thing that's happening in the non-delegation argument. The only difference is that until recently, there weren't enough fringe judges to give credence to that argument. It just happens that there were two on this Fifth Circuit panel, and so now we have to worry about it. Many thanks for that. Ilana's Noah suggests the SEC counters the non-delegation argument by saying that the decision about whether to bring an enforcement action is a question of law enforcement, not lawmaking. And 
Noah calls it, you know, an eccentric reading by the Fifth Circuit to hold otherwise. Uh, you disagree in your brief? Tell us why and whether, how, how serious you think the non-delegation issue is in this case. So I'm going to find myself in somewhat violent agreement with Noah, but not um, total uh, agreement here. I, I don't think it's a great non-delegation argument, but I don't think it's frivolous either. Um, I actually, in my brief to the court, I point out this, uh, it is consistent plausibly within the meaning of executive power and enforcement discretion. Uh, certainly to bring enforcement actions or not is a question of executive power, but that's not what's actually at issue here. At issue here is the choice when you do bring an enforcement action, what forum do you bring it in? And obviously that's quite significant for Jarkissi, whether he actually cares about the constitutional principle or not, because again, what's at stake here is a politically insulated Article Three adjudicator, judge, or an executive branch agency that's both prosecuting you and judging, adjudicating your case. Now, as Noah said, in reality, uh, ALJs tend to be very professional and insulated also and independent of the agency. That gets to the four cause removal protections that we have yet to talk about, but we will talk about. And so it's not really clear how this shakes out, but theoretically, it's, it certainly uh, is not unimportant. I mean, certainly if Congress hadn't created the option uh, of an administrative adjudication and simply said, you know, agency, decide if you get to bring these in courts or if you want, create an adjudicatory system entirely within the SEC if, if you want. Uh, I don't think anybody would say that the non-delegation argument is frivolous there. The problem here is, you know, what more could Congress really have done? Congress said, look, we understand sometimes you need efficient expert adjudicators, so we allow for the adjudication within the agency. Sometimes, you know, maybe more liberty and property is at stake or some more serious liberty interest is, is at stake. And so we think a district court would be more appropriate. And so it said, you have the option, you have the discretion. I, so Congress, I think, decided kind of all we could expect it to do. True, it didn't say, you know, very important liberty cases should go to the district court. It didn't say, right? It didn't give guiding principles in that sense. But look, the Supreme Court has upheld delegations in the public interest. So the fact that it's absent from the statute, I mean, I think we presume that the SEC's decisions are made in the public interest as opposed to the private interest, right? So it's, a, it's as Justice Alito said in a different case, it'd be freakish, right, to, to single that out for simply not having the magic words public interest. So look, it's not totally frivolous, okay? but but it's, I do think it is the weakest argument here. So call that semi-violent agreement with Noah. Noah, in your Atlantic piece, you say the Fifth Circuit's claim that regulation and the separation of powers are incompatible is not simply bad history. Like much of the rest of originalist jurisprudence, its selective history served up to justify a preferred political outcome. Uh, in fact, as voluminous scholarship has decisively established, you note, regulation was pervasive in the early republic. You're teaching a, a class on this important question, and it's a very large one before the Supreme Court today. Give our listeners a sense of why you think that the so-called originalist case against broad delegation of legislative power is bad history. The easiest answer is that if you just open the statutes at large from the very first Congress and start reading your way through it, you will come across tons of examples in which the Congress decides that the best way to realize its regulatory goal is to give power to an agency with a broad delegation. And that goes from very specific things that you might have thought were immediately assigned to Congress, like, say, the siting of post roads, in which you see Congress 
do both. Sometimes Congress tells you where the roads have to go. And sometimes they say, hey, postman, why don't you just figure out where to put the roads? And then much bigger issues like, I don't know, how to manage the national debt, which is a problem from the very beginning of the republic. As those of you will remember from your high school American history class, the federal assumption of state debts is a fundamental part of the creating of the modern constitution, which then raises the question of how do you manage this new debt? And Congress decides to create this entity that actually has representatives on it from all the branches of government, totally violating what you might imagine as a formalist separation of powers, and then gives it a relatively broad mandate to figure out how to deal with the debt. So if you get into the history, I argue, and this isn't my research, that point about the sinking fund commission, this incredible scholar at Marquette University, Christine Kexel Shabbat, the post-road stuff has been written about by a lot of other people. Um, but there are other great examples. There's a giant of administrative law, Jerry Mishaw, who wrote this very influential book on the history of administration. And if you read the preface, he says, I was planning to write about something else. And I just thought, you know, I should go check out when this started. And I picked up statutes at large. And what I found was modern administration. And Jerry is being dramatic to make a point. But the underlying reality that, of course, the late 18th century government was different from the government today, but in some critical ways, it was the same. And the way in which it was most the same is that government was innovating in pragmatic ways to try to address pressing problems. And the last thing I'll say on this is that this shouldn't surprise us because after all, the problem with the Articles of Confederation was that it created a weak federal state. Everybody, conservatives and liberals, progressives and reactionaries, textualists and living constitutionalists, everybody knows that. The underlying point in the creation of the Constitution was constituting strong federal power. So it shouldn't surprise us to find a strong federal government that is using its powers in interesting ways to create a functional national state. Many thanks for that. Ilan, Noah has cited uh, a series of examples about how regulation was pervasive in the early republic from the establishment of the wonderfully named Sinking Fund, which Alexander Hamilton created to all of these examples in the first uh, Congress from the Northwest Ordinance uh, to uh, internal improvements to statutes to forbid trade with the American Indian tribes. I'm reading here from one, another Atlantic piece that he linked to in his original piece. This is a central dispute in originalist and textualist scholarship. What is your response to the claim that uh, the argument that uh, non-delegation is deeply rooted in history is just simply bad history? I don't think it's necessarily bad history. There is some bad history, but it's mostly fine history from which people draw incorrect conclusions and inferences, okay? So this is to be charitable to all the all the folks uh, on the other side of this, like Julian Mortensen and Nick Bagley and Nick Perillo and Christine Shabbat and, and other excellent scholars, right? And so I like to, to joke, I have other law professors that I spar with on history, Jed Sugarman on removal power, for example, where I say, look, you are um, entitled to the inferences that you draw from the history, but you're not entitled to ownership over the history, historical facts themselves. So I actually think that a lot of the history is right, but I interpret the conclusions for them the, the, differently. I think that the interpretations that these historians and law professors have given are overstating uh, what they find, you know? So to take the post-Rhodes example, yeah, it's true that there were some delegations there, but the broad delegation was rejected, right? There, there was a motion to let the postmaster general decide where the post roads should be. And this was rejected 
on constitutional grounds. Now, Julian Mortensen disagrees with me that it was constitutional grounds. I go through each of the statements. I think it is constitutional grounds. So the reader, and by the way, his paper, Delegation at the Founding, my paper, Non-Delegation at the Founding, for those who want to go uh, and find this debate. right? So they specified the roads in great detail. And then what did they do? Yes, it's true. They, they gave the Postmaster General the power to cite the post offices. Well, it's okay. They, they already decided where the roads are going to be. We know where all the big towns that they're going through, that's where the post offices are, and that's where the deputy postmasters will be. So yeah, it's some discretion, but it's not this broad kind of discretion where we feel that Congress has somehow given up the right to make important policy decisions, if, if you will. Uh, the sinking fund, I'm, I'm not sure if this was exactly from the sinking fund, but Christine Shabbat, Professor Shabbat, has another example where there was broad delegations to the president to negotiate loan terms uh, with other nations, which again, the question for me is, what was Congress supposed to do? You, you could say, uh, you know, and it must be 2% interest. Okay, but what if France doesn't want 2% interest? What if they demand 10% interest, right? I mean, so what more was Congress supposed to do? The direct tax example that Professor Perillo has, again, I, I think is much narrower than, than, than they've let it on. Now, having said all that, here's where I think I might agree a bit more with, though actually I disagree, but it's a friendly disagreement. I don't think modern statutes are as broad as people seem to think. So I don't actually know that there would be that many statutes that raise non-delegation concerns under what I understand the non-delegation doctrine to be. I should be clear, by the way, because my reading of the history is different than Justice Thomas's, for example. Justice Thomas's is, is if any regulation that affects private rights is legislative power, that means I think that every legislative rule under the APA, every regulation with the force and effect of law, I think is legislative power. That would utterly destroy the administrative state if that were the non-delegation doctrine. I don't think anybody other than Thomas really agrees with that. And I don't think the history shows that, okay? Um, but I don't think the history is as broad as someone like Noah and Julian and Nick and, and Christine suggest. I don't think there's going to be this big revival of the non-delegation doctrine. Why not? Number one, Chevron deference is on the fritz, okay? Chevron deference, judicial deference to agency interpretations of law. You defer even if it's not the best reading. This has invited executive adventurism in interpreting statutes. Well, all of a sudden, if Chevron goes away and you give the statutes their best reading, that gives agencies less discretion than they had under Chevron. Add to that the major questions doctrine, where if it's an important issue, we demand a clear statement. That takes even more discretion away from agencies. And then add to that this point where I think scholars are showing that a lot of these delegations are not as broad as they think. Professor Jody Short at UC Hastings or uh, UC San Francisco College, I, I don't remember exactly what the due name is, I apologize, formerly UC Hastings, has an excellent paper uh, explaining what public interest means. And it turns out it's quite narrow to most of the agencies that have these standards. Gary Lawson has explained that just and reasonable rates had a common law meaning uh, that meant a certain fair rate of return on investment. And a lot of these broad statutes maybe aren't so broad. So between that and the no Chevron and the major questions doctrine, are we really going to see a revival of the non-delegation doctrine? Now, you might think getting rid of Chevron and, and the major questions doctrine is a problem, but that's a separate problem. Uh, if you will. I, I don't think it's a non-delegation problem necessarily. Great. Thank you so much for that. Well, let us now turn to the third of the big arguments in the case, and that is that the internal adjudicator who first heard Jarkizi's case had too much independence and therefore violates the requirements of Article 2 of the Constitution. 
that the president take care that the laws be faithfully executed. In other words, the fact that the adjudicator is non-removable, uh, the argument goes, violates the Constitution. Um, Noah, tell us about that argument and why you believe that it's not only unconvincing, but that it's a misreading of the previous opinions of the great champion of executive power, Chief Justice William Howard Taft. So there's something puzzling about this argument from the get-go, because if you think back to the beginning of our conversation together, we were talking about the Seventh Amendment and the importance of a jury trial. And the idea is something like, we want to make sure that you are having your case heard by an independent adjudicator who's not subject to political pressure. And that's part of why a jury trial is so important and why you can go to court. And that intuitively, I think, resonates with a lot of us. It feels weird to have somebody be both prosecutor and judge. So it's awfully strange, I think, when, and one might even say there's an awful lot of chutzpah in then saying, actually, the problem with the internal adjudicator that I was in front of is that they were not accountable to the president, that they were too politically independent. So to come back to my um, recurring theme that we do have to take the legal issue seriously, but we should not lose track of the underlying argument here, which seems to be less about legal issues than just, I want to keep committing fraud and not have to pay the price for it. The juxtaposition of these two arguments, right? I want an independent court to hear my case. Oh, and also the guy who heard my case isn't independent enough makes me think that maybe he's less concerned about the rule of law values that are motivating some of our conversations. So that's just an opening observation. Okay, what's the merit of the legal argument? Well, it goes something like this, just as you alluded to, Jeff, under Article 2 of the Constitution, the president has responsibility to take care that the law be faithfully executed. And under a line of cases that I argue in a, a piece that's actually coming out uh, just next month with Andrea Katz, that the kind of foundational decision here in court precedent is a 1926 case written by William Howard Taft called Myers v. United States. That case had sort of fallen into desuetude, but has been revived in the last 13 years by the Roberts Court. And, and that line of cases suggests that the way for the president to faithfully execute the law is to have some kind of control over everyone in the government who is not either part of the legislative branch or part of the judiciary. So this is sometimes called the unitary theory of the executive. And the administrative law judges are a problem here because they cannot be removed by the president of the United States, except according to statute for cause. And it gets even messier because technically, because of the kind of tenure the administrative law judges enjoy, the, uh, any complaints against them are heard by a different board in the government that ensures merit protection, which may or may not run afoul of a different set of arguments that come out of a case called Free Enterprise Fund that come out against these two layers of removal protection. But the underlying logic is the same as the argument in Myers, which is that for the president to fulfill his constitutional responsibilities, he needs some kind of control over everyone in the government. And the reason removal is so central here is that if you think about what constitutional tools the president might have for control, there's nothing in the Constitution that would lead you to believe that if the president gives an order to somebody outside of the army in time of war, that that person needs to follow the order. So, you know, Ilan has actually written about this, but importantly, the Constitution gives the president the power to request opinions in writing from the cabinet officers, but not to like tell them to do something. So if you're Taft, and you believe that the president needs control to fulfill his constitutional responsibilities, but there isn't any language in the Constitution that says you get control, well, what can you do for control? 
And that's where removal comes in. And the idea is something like, well, if I can fire you, then I can threaten to fire you. And with the threat to fire you, I can get you to do what I want you to do. So in the case of Myers v. United States, right, there's a postman, fire the postman. And if you don't fire the postman, I'll fire you. Oh, well, then I better fire the postman because otherwise the president will fire me. I love it. Fire the postman or I'll fire you. Sounds like the title of a great novel or maybe even a musical. Um, Elon, you argue in your brief that superior officers must have the ability to oversee inferior officers within the executive. Um, And in most cases, the only option for the president is removal. But this is different because here the inferior officers make decisions that their superiors can overrule. I'm just reading from your brief. So it's not necessarily unconstitutional for Congress to forbid the SEC from removing the law judges. Do I have it right? And tell us why you think that's the case. I guess Noah and I are in agreement. Once again, most agreement. So let me first just say something about his conclusion, which I think is I think is right. That's my view. It's not the view that most formalists have. My view is that there's no direct power to control. Anybody could speak, right? So the president can speak. Nothing prohibits the president from barking an order at somebody, right? The question is the constitutional obligation of other officers to obey. And the opinions clause and other history that I talk about in a forthcoming paper and that I talk about in the brief uh, suggests that uh, absent a statute, right, there is no constitutional obligation of the officer to obey. The only obligation is to provide opinions to what end? So that the president may exercise the executive power to oversee uh, the execution of the laws, which means removal if necessary. Uh, now, the removal power can be abused, of course, which might make the president liable for impeachment, okay? But uh, that's doesn't mean the power doesn't exist, right? Madison said in 1789, the wanton removal of meritorious officers would make the president himself liable to impeachment, okay? So the fact that it could be abused doesn't mean it doesn't exist. I agree with Noah about the absence of the ability to control. So my question to him when the mic gets back to him is, how else would you do it but through uh, removal, uh, the removal power? Okay, now the issue is, as Noah alluded, is a bit more complicated here because there are two layers, okay? There's the the principal officers. Theoretically, we don't actually know. The statute doesn't say it, but everyone assumes that the SEC commissioners cannot be removed except for cause by the president. And then the ALJs, who are inferior officers, cannot be removed except for cause by the SEC commissioner. So in this case called Free Enterprise Fund, which Noah also alluded to, the Supreme Court said, well, two layers of for-cause removal is too much, too much independence from the president. So what did they do? They struck that second layer, right? So they kept the SEC commissioners removable only for cause, but the protections for the inferior officers went away. That is exactly the wrong answer. It's doubly wrong. Okay, here, here's why. The, the answer, the correct Formalist constitutional answer, and other formalists will disagree with me, but they're wrong, okay? The correct formalist answer here is that the inferior officers can be protected from at-will removal. There's a long precedent about this, including a case involving a naval cadet who couldn't just be discharged without a court-martial, okay? That's called Perkins. But why is that okay? Why was that okay? Well, because the naval cadet still has to follow orders, okay, in war or peace. That's what it means to be an inferior officers. Inferior officers have to follow the orders of their principals or the principals have the ability to revise and reverse their decisions, which is exactly what we have here. The agency, the SEC, could always reverse and revise the inferior officer, the inferior ALJ's decisions. So executive power remains intact. You can protect them from removal because in theory, they have to follow orders. 
Okay. The question is, what about principal officers? Well, the discussion that Noah and I just had suggested there's no obligation on the part of the principal officers to obey the president outside the opinions clause. And so my view is they must be removable, right? But the inferior officers, as inferior officers, do have an obligation to follow the principle, right? And so that's the that's the difference between the two. So I think you got to get rid of that first layer if it even exists, rather than that second layer. Well, it's time for closing thoughts in this wonderful discussion. And Noah, you argued that most dangerously in this case, ending independence for internal agency adjudicators would undermine the rule of law. Without independence, adjudicators would be beholden to politicians who oversee agencies. And in an interview with The New Yorker recently, you expressed concern about candidate uh, Donald Trump's uh, plan to declare war on the independent agencies and said that it could have grave consequences if the Supreme Court undermined protections for heads of agencies uh, that insulated them from executive pressure. Uh, tell us uh, what the stakes are and why you're concerned. So the basic issue here is what kind of government did the Constitution set up? And there's a strain of thought that I think Donald Trump is the furthest instantiation of that the Constitution creates a government that should be able to operate as an extension of the personality of the chief executive. And I think that is completely wrong. I think that's an undermining of the text of the Constitution. I think it's a betrayal of the values of our founders. And I think it's bad government. I also think that over the course of the last 200 and some odd years, we've constructed a government in line with the Constitution that allows for efficacious administration while guarding against that very possibility. And yet, it seems to me like current Supreme Court doctrine is trending in the same direction that Donald Trump is pushing. So what I worry about in the assault on the independence of agency adjudicators isn't whether the SEC is going to have to bring its cases in front of a federal judge or in front of an internal adjudicator. It's that by making more and more aspects of the administrative state directly responsive to the personality of the chief executive, and by that I mean to the president as a person, as an individual, by creating these kinds of chains of command, as Alana is alluding to, right, the threat of removal in this kind of way, that you will increasingly reorient the government so that an individual realizing their whims could operationalize the state without any sort of a check. So the worry that I expressed in the New Yorker interview dovetails perfectly with the anxiety I have in the Atlantic article, which underlies a lot of my scholarship and my concern about the direction of the Supreme Court's Article II jurisprudence, which is that they seem to have forgotten that nowhere does the Constitution require this vision of presidential power. So to rely on the Constitution to implement it is not only bad law, but at the end of the day, dangerous for the American people. Elon, last word in this great discussion is to you. Noah has argued that uh, giving the president unfettered control over the administrative state would embrace a vision of a populist demagogue more in line with Andrew Jackson or perhaps Thomas Jefferson in his more extreme moments than, than Alexander Hamilton. And therefore, it is bad originalism as well as bad constitutional structure. What is your response? I agree. And should we find someone more disagreeable? But but in all seriousness, I, I, I agree with Noah. And this 
I, I mean, I don't know about the Donald Trump stuff. Maybe, maybe not. I don't think that much about Donald Trump, which I think makes me, I, you know, I try not to for mental health reasons and, and, and all sorts of things. But what I will say as a general matter, okay, what Noah says is right. And I think it's under my understanding of the opinions clause and executive power, it protects the independence of these officers. Because under my conception of executive power that I tried to articulate in a response to Noah earlier, Congress can assign discretion to independent agencies, and it is their duty to exercise their discretion uh, and according to their best judgments. Now, the president can suggest, can order, can threaten to fire, but as I argue in the forthcoming paper, the threat of firing comes at a huge political cost, right? Just ask Richard Nixon, who effectively had to fire two attorneys general in order to get the special prosecutor, right? Tell that to George W. Bush and Alberto Gonzalez, you know, when they um, removed U.S. attorneys for not investigating Democrats for voter fraud or whatever in 2004 and 2005, whenever that happened. What about Jim Comey being fired, right? Firing has a political cost, and the cost increases, right, with a view in which the president does not have a constitutional right of control. So I don't think anything under this formalist conception prevents Congress from giving independent duties to agencies, making a requirement, excuse me, of bipartisanship, uh, staggered terms, and so on. And so I'll end uh, on a slightly hoarse voice, hoarse note, that I think I generally agree with Noah about this. Thank you so much, Noah Rosenblum and Elon Warman, for a, a vigorous, illuminating, and superb discussion of the SEC case and the future of the administrative state. Noah, Elon, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Jeff. This was really such a pleasure. And thank you, Elon. Thank you both. Today's episode was produced by Lana Ulrich, Bill Pollack, and Samson Mastachari. It was engineered by Bill Pollack. Research was provided by Samson Mastachari, Cooper Smith, and Yara Durese. Please recommend the show to friends, colleagues, or anyone anywhere who's eager to know about the future of the administrative state and who among us is not. And you can sign up for the newsletter at constitutioncenter.org forward slash connect. And always remember that the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit we rely on the generosity, the passion, the engagement, the devotion to lifelong learning of people from around the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. Support the mission by becoming a member at constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership. Or as the holidays approach, give a donation of any amount to support our work, including the podcast, $5, $10 or more. Signal your enthusiasm and your devotion to the great mission of the National Constitution Center, uh, which is so meaningful for all of us to be part of. And you can do that at constitutioncenter.org forward slash donate. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.